0: Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Yain, the producer with our host Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hey, Art Grain listeners, I'm really excited to present this interview with J.P. Roy to you. Get ready to nerd out on color theory and our perception of reality. J.P. mentioned some of my favorite books that I'll add the links to. Listen to the end of this interview to hear the most scientific and objective answer about the much heated debate regarding the color temperature of, you guessed it, ultramarine blue. I'll give you a hint. It's not what you think it is. Before we get into the interview, though, I'm here with my friend Rafael and past host. We're having a conversation on Zoom right now, and he is on a beach in Bali, um, and he's got some funky hat on. So anyways, uh, you said you have some news for me.
1: I do, man. Great to connect with you, Tan. And yes, hello from the beach the in Bali. Look, the exciting news is that I'll be running the second NFT boot camp very shortly, starting January 2nd. Uh, It was a blast the first time, so I'm excited to share the NFT Bootcamp again, which helped a lot of of artists get started to understand and mint their NFTs the first time. And we've added extra features this time around. Nice. And
0: I'm guessing it is not going away anytime soon and it's just getting more complicated. NFTs? Yes, NFTs.
1: Right, sir. They've been here since 2015. They have been here for six years. The whole... Industry, if you like, is growing. They're getting more recognition and more utility. So, going from JPEGs, still JPEGs are most NFTs, but there's a whole lot more beyond that now, too.
0: Nice. And of what um, I'm guessing a lot of people are wondering how they can transfer what they've already done, which are paintings and physical objects into NFTs. So, I'm hoping you'll have some advice for them.
1: You bet. This is a big question I get from artists a lot. And we cover this within the standard bootcamp by adding a a module, if you like, a a class on what are called fidgetal NFTs. Now, this funny word, fidgetal, is a fusion of physical and digital. So when we say fidgetal, we're connecting the physical and the digital together.
0: Did you copyright that word yet?
1: (laughs) No, I didn't come up with it, actually. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's an awkward word. I'd love to find a better one, but it's the best I know so far. All right. And you've got a couple of ways to do this. You can use QR codes or NFC tags. So you can scan with your phone. And it's worked with sculpture as well as paintings. And one very cool way is to embed the tag beneath the paint of your your painting. So it can never be tampered with. It's really uh, hidden inside there.
0: That sounds really um, fun and complicated. So where do I sign up for this thing? Cause I need to figure this stuff out.
1: Awesome. And we'll love to have you join us. Sign up at artistcatalyst.com or specifically artistcatalyst.com slash NFT bootcamp. And we're kicking off January 2nd. So sign up by then and I'll connect with you and invite you into the bootcamp. And uh, we'll have a blast. It's, it's fun to do a live program together. Excellent. And learn as a group. You'll find lots of other artists have the same questions and we're all learning together. It's a great fun experience.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I'll get my uh, digital wallet ready and uh, come join you.
1: Awesome. (laughs) Thanks, Tom.
0: I don't think I say this enough, but I wanted to say thank you for sticking with us over all these years and for your incredible support. Now, without further ado, I give you J.P. Roy.
2: Welcome to the Archive Podcast. I'm here with co-host Adina Brodsky and one truly, JP, uh, honestly, one of my favorite painters working today. Uh, he's a teacher at the New York Academy. He shows with Gallery Polson and makes amazing images that are seemingly quite out of your head, which I want to talk about a little more, uh, JP Roy. So
3: welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Uh, thank you for having me. And just, just so, so my mom doesn't get mad at everybody. J and the P stands for Jean Pierre. Once you know, now you can call me whatever you want. But that one's for you, mom. I want everybody to know. What is? It, it, I, I, I just love uh, any opportunity to give a shout out to my mom. <laughs> so speaking of your mom,
2: tell us about uh, growing up in Los Angeles as an artistic kid. I imagine.
3: Oh. Uh, Yeah, you know, I, you know, I think we all, you know, I'm, I'm smack dab in middle age right now. And, um, I think it's interesting what memory can do. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember having a great childhood. I, I remember, you know, sunny Southern California in the late seventies and eighties, um, amazing parents who were super supportive. Uh, you know, my mom was like the biggest supporter, you know, if I wanted, if I wanted to get, uh, some watercolors in a pad of paper or take a class or, uh, if I, if I wanted to skip school and stay home and draw all day, like she was completely in support of it all. Um, uh, and just, I wouldn't be here without that. Like, I definitely was not one of you know. You encounter people of every model type, you know, supportive parents, indifferent parents, or parents that were like, "Don't you dare pick up a paintbrush!" And then the kid reactionarily kind of goes into the thing that their are parent- I, I was the first one. I was, you know, uh, definitely um, re- really supportive parents. I, I think my dad being slightly on, on the on the practical side, you know, my mom was a, a nurse. Uh, my father moved with my mom to California to, to be a stand-up comic. Oh, uh, no way. Yeah, 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 in the 70s. Uh, so this is like Comedy Store era? Yeah, well, I mean, well, a lot of other clubs that are gone, you know, the Comedy Store is one of the, the, the kind of real holdouts. But, I mean, I was a kid, you know, we went to all kinds of uh I wouldn't always get into them, but they were always like in my mind because my dad and his friends were talking about them. You know, people would come over to our house when I was a kid and they would stay up late at night with their yellow pads, writing jokes and writing skits and interacting and stuff. So it was kind of this buzz of, um, you know, that, that 70s uh, California um, cultural moment, you know, Carson was like pre-Leno, pre-Letterman, you know, it was, it was like post all in the family, this kind of like deconstruction of, of archetypal comedic television was really hot. Um, and, uh, it just, it felt like, you know, people were, there was a kind of a freedom you know, in, intellectually in the house. Uh, also, I think, you know, like California at that time, famous, famously was not a religious place, but it was an incredibly f- spiritual place. And so in terms of like practices, you know, people trying to become a comedian, people trying to become artists, people trying to like open spiritual, yeah, like it, there was this, there was this freedom to be able to experiment with new vocabularies everywhere. That I didn't understand. I just thought this is how people talk. Like, oh, these people use these words and these people are using these words. And like, it's interesting. Of course, you know, you you step back and you realize, oh wow, well, my parents came from like 70s suburban Massachusetts where, you know, there it was, there wasn't the same kind of freedom. There was kind of like very kind of strict kind of cultural quasi-class boxes that people were like, ah. I'm not interested in this. That and the fact that my parents were like, I don't want to raise a kid in a Massachusetts winter. Uh, and <laughs> so they left the East Coast and moved West Coast. And then, much to their chagrin, I moved back. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, it's childhood for me, I, you know, I was a beach kid. I never really lived, I, you know, I mostly lived kind of like West on the West Side. Like, I don't know if anybody knows LA very well, but I never really lived that much east of Lincoln. So, You know, it was like where the ocean meets the mountains, meets the desert and the kind of forest. And um, so the horizon line was always there uh, for me. And, um, you know, the film industry was always right kind of behind me. My parents weren't, didn't work in the film industry. My father started an HVAC company relatively early on. You know, he was always working in refrigeration. But probably when I was like 12, 13, maybe he stopped work. He stopped going to comedy clubs as much because um, he really, at that point, at that time, you had to go on the road, you know, 300 days a year if you wanted to be a successful comic. Uh, And he didn't want to leave his family. You know, uh, we loved him and he loved us. And so he really focused on um, his business. And so I think uh, to kind of come back around, they were super supportive. But once I like found... Success working within the art side of the film industry. My dad was like, "Okay, all right, he's he's secure." And then I was like, "You know what, Dad? I kind of, kind of film industry drive me crazy, and I think I want to move to New York, get my MFA, and become a painter." He was like, "God damn it, you know." <laughs> <laughs> so he was he was always very important. Uh, very he was always very supportive of me, despite the fact that he was very aware of the challenges that go into leading a kind of like creative lifestyle. And he faced the same ones having to decide between being a comic or, you know, a, a, a father who was home for his family.
2: So what was it like watching him work on this craft, sort of a, a long shot dream like yours to be a painter and, and all that excitement and, and risk, and then sort of, you know, for for good reasons, but kind of choose that uh, to uh, leave that behind. Was that difficult for him and you? Uh, you know, it's
3: it's funny because I, I talk I talked about obsession already, and I talk. You know, um, my work is the result of my obsessions, uh, and and it's the result of the things I'm not obsessed with. You know, uh, style. Uh, I've, I've, Peter Fox used to say uh, style can come out of what you don't know how to do very well or what you're not interested in doing, you know. And I, I, I think in a weird way, you know, my dad was like one of my first models for creative obsess, obsess, obsession because he was constantly writing, you know, all over the house, stacks of yellow uh, kind of like legal pads with jokes. And his handwriting was with, you couldn't read it. I mean, it was chick, the worst form of chicken scratch. Uh, but it was pages and pages and pages, stacks of them, well after he even stopped performing, you know, in wow. his DNA. Like, he couldn't he could not externalize this thing. And so it was that obsession or, like, the obsession with the joke or the obsession with kind of the observation of the world written down, like condensed, written down and delivered in a way that kind of cracks the bubble of seriousness within the audience. But, but also the, the deep need to keep doing the thing, despite the fact that he wasn't participating like in a market for it anymore, you know, and it's only been in the last few years where like those legal pads kind of like made it up in the attic or, 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 or aren't like visible anymore. But that also might just be the fact that I'm not there that often and he cleans them up when I come home to visit them. I, I yeah, I, I, won't swear either way for it. I mean, I left Los Angeles 20 years ago. Um, and the art world in LA now is very different than it was when I left. And the art world when I left was very different when, than when I was really growing up there. And, you know, at that time when I was a kid, the art world in LA was very conceptual, um, and it was also much smaller than it is now, and LA is very different than New York, and like that LA's culture, some of its culture, like the outdoorsiness, the beach culture, the hiking culture, the car culture, there's a lot of cultures in LA that are like right there on the street. But then there's a whole other level of culture in L.A. that is kind of removed just because of the, the lack of proximity and density that L.A. has versus New York. So like the art scene in L.A. then, you didn't really it didn't really spill over the way it does in New York. You know, you can you cannot participate in the art scene in New York and bump into it everywhere because of the population density and, the you know, the 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 way that um, the city works on a mechanical level. So growing up in LA, I didn't see any of that. What I did see everywhere was the film industry, Um, you know, and the film industry also had a really kind of narrow critical criteria for what was good and what was bad, especially visually. Um, And the film industry, you know, much more so now, but even then had a kind of vertical integration between like talent like drawing on a, a talent pool that kind of started, especially in production or in the art side of production, started with people who just knew how to draw really well or knew how to create space really well. Um, you know, and that goes back to the pre-digital days of the early parts of the film industry. And I, I, I we can get more into this later, but like the, the 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 last generation of like Hudson River School painters or American Neo-Luminist painters. After Bierstadt, after coal, after uh, after church, you know, uh, in the beginning of modernism, they didn't have a market anymore. And a lot of them moved to L.A. to bring those skills to the burgeoning. In the beginning, it was a real estate industry where they were literally doctoring photographs to send to East Coast clients to get them to buy West Coast real estate by painting out all the telephone poles and the railroad tracks and the cattle farms to make it look like it was pastoral Southern California real estate. Then the film film industry started there. And then all those guys started working in early visual effects. And that gave birth to the hundred years later of the visual effects industry. So for me, growing up, if you knew how to draw, if you loved to draw, you were looking at, you know, and you grew up in LA, you weren't seeing a whole lot of people who loved to draw in the way a 14 year old understands what loving to draw is. You know, I, as a 14 year old, I didn't understand side Twombly but I understood like Mobius and Ralph MacQuarie, and those guys all got appropriated by the film industry. So early on for me, it was like, well, I know which place I think I'm going to have a place in the dialogue of. And it was the film industry. So my, my, my earliest kind of art making commercially or professionally was in the visual effects industry starting when I was like 15 and then when I was an undergrad, I was studying film and art at the same time. And I took like the first introductory Photoshop class that was like ever offered at this school. And so I actually was like painting digitally before I ever started painting in oils, wow. not by only, by like a six months difference, you know, uh, but, and I suppose I had painted in oils when I was a kid, like my mom would get you an oil set and you play around with it. But like, in terms of instruction, I started my instruction in painting digitally like a year maybe before I ever really got instruction in painting oil. So my whole literacy with art making and computers, both in terms of like my own self-educational skill set, but putting my image-making, you know, interiority in, into like making a living off of it, from the very beginning, almost everything I did needed to be digital. You know, you could draw all day long, but ultimately the, the concept images were going to have to get emailed to a producer, and those had to be digitized. And so the sooner you digitize them, the, the better the workflow went. So there was a real integration early on with me between digital and the handmade, That has gotten, that distance has gotten greater and greater and greater as the years have gone on. Like, I don't do that much digital work now just because for me, the two, I know exactly what I'm going to get if I were to, if I were to do something, not exactly, but I know enough about what this kind of digital light making would do or this, this digital model of perspective will do that I can get 85% of the way there just operating as I said the other day with my like my meat based rendering engine, but like my understanding of light kind of was being co-educated between like a traditional or a classical studio or let's just call it like a post Renaissance model of form and, and illusionistic form alongside a more 20th century commercialized digital model. Those two things were kind of getting educated at the same time. So there was like this angel devil conversation happening and now in my studio it's much more about kind of taking my own internalized models of how form and light and space works based on those two that conversation and trying to solve all those problems here and make the thing like once as opposed to kind of figuring out all the solutions first and then just executing the thing now as we talked about a little bit I, I'm, I'm this is like a ten minute answer to a tiny little question but um, we talked a little bit about like using Blender and stuff, and there are definitely times where I'll be like, you know what, I don't even know where to begin thinking about like if I have a torus and there's a reflection of a thing over here, like what, what would be an easy way for me to think about how I could solve this problem? Creating a really, really basic um you know, perspectival or reflection model going like, okay, so things are getting warped in this direction or in that direction, or big things get small here little things get big here, putting it aside and then kind of taking my understanding of how that model works and and building it more organically into the language that the picture already is up until that point. But one thing that I think digital stuff has been really great for for me is because I, I also teach. And so a lot of the concepts that I talk about in terms of lighting and in terms of form and in terms of like materiality of stuff, it's really hard sometimes in the studio to be like, or in the classroom, to be like, here's a ball, and here's another ball that's shiny, and you see how they're different, and to try to assign a vocabulary to it, but sometimes digitally, you can in real time, you can turn things on and off for a student in a way that makes them go, oh my god, I I totally get the difference between an object that has like, zero specular reflection of the light source versus one that has a really, really razor sharp thing, and that, there's a speed associated with digital modeling that can be really, really effective in trying to, to like get across um, a perceptual set of grammar, but also the vocabulary associated with that grammar. Um, so I, I, I think, like yourself, I also want to try to stay up to, the date on this, up to date on the state of the technology so that I can keep appropriating vocabulary and grammar where it suits my desire to want to like build worlds But the other thing we were talking about is that the more that all these programs, you know, begin to emulate each other and they're all kind of getting closer and closer to this end game of like really, really, really believable, like one button realism, the more you rely on that stuff, the more your stuff looks like everybody else's stuff. So then how do you figure out ways to just pick and choose like a salad bar, like what you want and internalize those models and then produce work that really leaves a lot of room for you as opposed to, you know, letting the technology be the final arbiter or something like that, you know, but these are like big questions that everybody I think right now is dealing with in their own way. And I, I want to
2: address that topic a little further because I came from things, the exact opposite that you did. It was all very traditional, uh, you know, whatever, like, Representational painting from when I was quite young, and that's all that I did. And I'm to this day computer illiterate, basically. But I see these tools as being very powerful and interesting to me. Like, I saw the reason I'm taking this uh, Blender course is I saw something on Instagram, like uh, the teacher that's teaching this it was like building a sculpture on on blender of an elephant like moving it around and it just like blew my mind you know it's like that is so cool if i could learn to do that but with that i'm a little illiterate about why some of the effects in certain people's paintings and then like practicing a week with blender i'm like oh that's why it looks like that a lot of paintings really are mirroring That look and it took me playing around with it like oh it's a blender copy and what what do we do with that you know it's like because you whether you're doing from photos or these interesting computer programs are all such great tools but it does you do just copy something digital to some degree you know
3: right it's it's difficult to let you know
4: it they, it inherently,
3: you know, form the language of form is a beautiful thing, you know? And if you're engaged with the language of form, um, as opposed to someone who's not really interested in it, you know, the better and better we get at representing form, the more seductive it is, you know, and the closer that you can get to a certain kind of, um, you know, uh, it, it, it just, it just aids in the externalization of ideas, um, but you're right in that there, Ideally, you know, there's a, a threshold, and I don't know when it is, but there's a threshold conceptually that we could cross where, like, realism at the push of a button is achieved. You can drag and drop existing models. You can model stuff, whatever you want drop it into this thing and realism is achieved. And that gets so boring that there's like this whole, now we've narrowed it to realism and now we have to exit into this incredible range of like, what go into like pure imaginative authorship where the, the machine isn't the voice anymore. The, the machine is just pure tool and it, it allows you to create an infinite multitude of grammars of form or, uh, you know, of kind of like optical physics that represent the interiority of you rather than the computer getting closer and closer to externalizing this kind of generalized real. Do, do you think
2: that's like a bar for you for quality? We talk a lot about that on this show. Like what, what's quality in a work and some people touch on you know, ideas such as like unseen beauty and there's poetic ideas, tactile ideas. Some people just want to see craft executed, you know, that's all that they want. But do you think you're looking for the artist, almost like a, an abstract painter would work, just going to a blank canvas, whether they're working representationally or not and putting themselves on there that's not really dependent on any sort of... Uh, reference you know or collecting reference to work from
3: uh i won't say whether or not i want everybody else to do that but i will say that i am obsessed with doing that you know like that my my and i and i told and i and i want to differentiate between like what i'm obsessed with versus what is actually like just because i value it i don't really expect anybody else to value it but I do encounter people who seem to value it. So then there's a little conversation that can take place, you know.
5: By the way, guys, do you feel like, like I was recently thinking about this and like like it feels insane to expect people to value the same things that we do in art like that. Um, right. Yes. And, and yes, that's exactly what, what we do. <laughs> yes. Like, Like we're making art hoping that other people find what well, you know the things that we do beautiful and meaningful uh, just because we find it beautiful and meaningful and i feel like all all we do really is try to find either the tools or the language to make other people see that but it feels so cr-
3: well and that and but that's if we can all agree on ice cream being the same thing which you know that uh, no but this is a great point you know i i th- th- and this is what is a little um for me i kind of keep having to remind myself and come back to this this idea that you know it's it's so easy to get caught up in talking about the conversation of art as if we all have a shared understanding of what it is and we just we we don't there are groups that do and there are groups that kind of like begrudgingly accept like okay well i know we have a slightly different idea but it's better if we align ourselves in terms of, a, a for an either a, an academic position or a market position, like strength in numbers, you know, and then then there are, are, are kind of dialogues that I think are so refined that everybody within that dialogue is kind of chasing the same goal. I am kind of constantly, uh, I am thrilled when I find other people who seem to access my work through the same language that I'm employing. I don't expect it, but when it happens, I'm thrilled and I think the beautiful thing about the kind of state of pluralism that we're in right now in the art market or just the art dialogue is that it's so big very few people are at risk of finding nobody who can enter their work through the same language that they're using to make the work. Uh, and I think that's beautiful. I, I, don't, I don't know if we've ever had that, but I mean, social, that's one of the beautiful things about social media. There's a lot of, a lot of problems with it. But I think that's one of the things that is really surprising to me. But the other side of it is is just you know remind, especially for young artists, you know, because uh, I teach a lot, I, I encounter this all the time. But like reminding yourself that, um, you know, you got to be open enough to listen to what other people are seeing because you know the idea of like the death of the author is real enough that once the work is out in the world it's a separate thing from you and the interpretation of the individual who views the work is just as valid as anybody else's to a certain degree and your your intention as the artist doesn't it doesn't exist outside of the studio in the way that we might think it does while we're making the thing but 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 all, but at the same time you it's up to you to become the world's best expert in your own work because if you're not then that outside dialogue will take over. And so it's like this bizarre balance between these two positions of something being like totally personal and then letting it become, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say universal because that, that, that uh, presumes that it's going to be kind of accepted evenly. I and mean, that's not what I mean. But um, yeah, I, it's, it's a challenge especially at, well, I, the thing I try to do is I try to be, I am my own first viewer. I am the first audience for the work. Uh, and if I can just engage myself, if I can solve that problem first for myself, then everything else, you know, I don't have any control of anything beyond that. Uh, and so that's, that's the first priority. And in some ways it's the one that, um, the only one I can make peace with. The other one is out of my control.
5: You know, JP, you're right, because our world has become more pluralistic. So when, when I was an undergrad, the chair of the painting department, I had this, like her opinion was the painting was dead. So she thought specifically figurative painting had been dead for years and she didn't actually like painting altogether. All and then I went straight from that to the academy where there was people who thought that like so those only good paintings could be on, you know, like if burnt sienna was used as an underpainting and then you had the exact right mix of like sap green and alizarin crimson. And it, it all felt like constantly having to Defend whatever it was I did um, against everyone else, and I'm realizing that even like either either we're in more of a bubble, right, um, or you, or people maybe do accept that there's multiple ways to paint, and maybe that, and if you feel like painting is dead, maybe there's a place in the art world for you. And uh, but you also don't have to try to enforce that opinion on on everyone else. And I mean, much like you, there are a lot of problems with social media, but partially exposing us to a bunch of different things. Uh, and then leaving us to form an opinion about that and realizing that opinion is probably not, you know, the only one is, is, is kind of magical. So GP, I actually always thought that you were, um, kind of the same age as me, but I guess he must be like, like, like when I think of growing up, it's the nineties, so you must be a bit older. I am, Yeah, I'm 47. Um, Some thirty nine. It's so, right, right. Like the, um, I, like I, I think I just skipped part of part of childhood, being being in Russia, or skipped part of the American childhood. But kind of this idea. But by the ninety, by the late nineties, there was this idea that we have a right to follow our dream. Like, like, like the, like the ability to choose a dream, pick it, and see where it goes. Um, and and I, I mean, I also I had. Supportive parents. They didn't particularly want me to become become a painter, but like you know, once I chose it, they were very good about it. Um, I, and it wasn't like like I feel like that ability, the ability to follow your dream, is actually pretty recent. And uh, like nobody could do that. Others, yeah, maybe, for sure. Like you know, the aristocrats and I don't know, 18th century, for, you know, for, like unless you were very very wealthy, uh, it, like or, it, or you
3: were willing to live without consequence. Um, I mean, like, like below a level, like a uh, below a level of, uh, like societal security.
5: Um, you're right. Yeah. You are like Francois, yeah, like Francois Villon was not wealthy, but he was willing to, I don't know, break the law, buy, beg, steal, etc., and continue writing poetry. But most people, get, you but that's know. also a very
3: small percentage of people that, that do that and then are recognized within their their chosen, uh, you know, dialogue for for having been. Worth, worthy
5: of yes but most people who break the law to kind of live their dreams yes. actually you know are, are probably never heard from again it, it,
2: correct yeah yeah i feel i feel like that's the deal that i made was like I, it, it, very limited resources little support and it was like if i do this it's gonna y- who knows where it'll end up it's a crazy decision to make it's like
3: this isn't gonna end well but like... Yeah, I, you know, and and we've all seen, you know, look, the, the three of us are all practicing artists, you know, um, we're all recognized uh, within the kind of, you know, within the dialogue, and, and we, we've we've fought hard to find a place for ourselves. I, you know, I'm not going to presume about where where you want to be in your mind versus where you are. I'm sure we all want more success and security for ourselves, but but I think that we've all seen a lot of people um, for an almost endless number of reasons had that kind of cultural uh, mantra of like chase your dreams. You can make it get cut completely short for the most unseen or even mundane of reasons. You know, people, uh, family illness, uh, just the practicality of um, you know having to make work that pays for the making of other work, you know. There's all these strange mechanisms that, and again, back to your point earlier, you know, like it all gets called art, but the kind of resources that go into different kinds of art are so radically different from each other that every artist has to figure out a different set of mechanisms to access those resources and. That's exhausting. Like, like, there's, there's, you know, that there's uh, back back to your earlier, you know, comment about how it's a relatively recent thing for people to think that they can go be successful at the thing they want to be a part of. You know, we could we could make this entire podcast just about the state of like the for-profit or or even not even for-profit, but just the educational industry in the West. And how you have all these promises of success within your field based on specialization with an undergrad and your MFA program that is the result of, like, this educational industry that didn't exist really before the 20th century. I mean, up until 1920 or roughly around the, the before the, the, the Great Depression, 80% of the country was employed as farmers or agricultural workers, not because that was purely because it required that many people to produce enough food to feed everybody else. And you had all these shifts that took place with technology. And then, then people had the freedom to be able to like not have to be a farmer anymore. That's such a recent thing. It's within like, it's within 100 year old person's lifetime, you know? So, and this gets back to like this other, you know, we're jumping right in the middle of things, but like at the core of a lot of my work has become, uh, me trying to find ways to visualize the idea that the, the environment and context that our you know the homo sapien neurodevelopment occurred in over 200,000 years that that whole context that are, that we were wired in like doesn't exist anymore. And I'm trying to find ways to make pictures about how that context, the exteriority of the world that we kind of inhabit is so different than the way than the than the world that our interiority was wired over hundreds of thousands of years to expect. Like the world that expects to be there versus the world that's actually there and the kind of the disconnect between the two. And I think you're that's a great point like that you make. Like we in a hundred years went from a world where like nobody expected to be able to, to actualize their dreams. But the smallest percentage of people worldwide because of royalty or, you know, uh, inherited wealth to like most of them, like the most like a huge percentage of the American populace or, or the Western world expects at least within a certain age range to be able to go out there and actualize that dream identity.
5: I mean, we don't actually have to go back a hundred years. So um, when when I came here, I mean, we, we we moved. Speaking of, you know, we moved to suburban Massachusetts, which is where I am right now, trying to raise my kids. So, where your parents escaped from? Can I can I ask
3: what part of Massachusetts?
5: I'm in Brookline. Okay, my parents my parents
3: were from uh, Waltham and Topsfield.
5: Um, yeah, I, I know Waltham, but um, uh, but you know, it, Brookline um, was, it was where all the Russian immigrants, you know, ended up. So when I was going to high school, my high school is probably 20% Russian. Like you, you barely had to, had to learn English and nobody, like nobody out of all of, you know, like all of my friends or out of all of my parents, friends, kids, you know, like even had the slightest idea, you know, like saying I'm going to go do art or theater or music or some, some things that doesn't pay wouldn't have crossed anyone's mind. And not because, you know, their parents would of disapproved or not allowed them or like you just had to do something practical like out of everyone we know that you know it was kind of like the russian immigrants growing up at the same time as us they all they, they became very good and very successful at what they did um and they became doctors and scientists and lawyers and accountants uh but me and my sister are probably the only artists and i i, I bet like all of my parents friends are like oh god what did they do wrong parenting wise but yeah like i feel like america specifically more more people expect to be allowed to you know live a good I guess the West but yeah like 20 30 years ago yeah,
3: but the West, but the West emulating the American model
5: um yeah yeah and and this is both I mean it's good like in the grand scheme of things it's good that people don't expect to have to work a boring job their whole life right but then there's you know like I feel like there's only so many art jobs out there right yeah, yeah. no I mean that's what's that's' gonna, um, what's gonna happen to to, to, to all, all of all of these MFAs.
2: I mean that I think like that door is closing too, like I think a lot about Gen yeah. x like j p you're probably, you're you're Gen x I think uh Dean and I are on the tail of Gen X, but I think that that there's a real freedom with that generation where I see with proper millennials and and Gen Z, that door's closing. Like, they don't see the same options we did.
4: Well,
5: actually, I think there's, um, because at least like, they don't see the options that we saw. That. And I'm not sure we saw that many options either. I think we just jumped uh-huh. into it blindly. But I think there's, <laughs> there's different options. Like, I don't know, the option to get very, very famous by doing a TikTok dance. Yeah, right? no, I, I, I I'm think you're right. I mean, the,
3: like, the, 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 there are doorways that are visible to them that are kind of invisible or generationally closed to, to us as was probably the case before us you know jp i
2: wanted to ask you i have a list of questions about how you because like i uh, you know i look at your work and it doesn't look derivative of a digital program and it does look like your but it's so highly realized and polished that i'm wondering what, it, it, what tools, if any, you use, or how do you work from the ground up? How do um, you just start painting? You know, I, I,
3: the first caveat I'll say is like my process has evolved in the twenty years that I've been. I, you know, I, I I've been making pictures since I was a kid, and then I started making them professionally in the film industry when I was in my late teens, uh, and. Then I graduated from the Academy in 2002, 2003. And so, you know, you're looking at like, I'm 47. I, I, you know, legally, I started working within the film industry when I was like 16. So you can say that there's like a 30-year continuously changing process. But that process's goal has always been the desire to want to, build worlds from like out of a position of intimacy with the mechanics of the physicality of those worlds, you know, like for me, um, form and physics have always been intertwined. I didn't really always have an understanding or the vocabulary of what it was that I was chasing after, you know, like the vocabulary of light or or going to the academy to study anatomy, you know, wanting to try to internalize the mechanics of the body in a way that it will allow me to get closer to, to including kind of realistic depictions of figuration within these worlds that I was creating. So I'm kind of, when I talk about my process, I'm kind of talking about like where I'm at now, but that it hasn't been the same over the last 20 years, the thing that has been the same is to want to generate um, worlds and space and a sense of time and place from uh, an imaginative place. Like, I'm not trying to document the real and make it look different. I'm trying to take the non-existent and make it look existent. Uh, and, or, or to try to make the non-visible visible, you know, or to try to make the interior, the interior to externalize an interiority, which happens to be kind of like my interior. So, but uh, you know, I mean, I could, like, like right now I'm working on a new piece and it's, I mean, I can show you. It's more abstract. Totally, starved, totally. I so, That's and I'll awesome. do a quick screen share here, so you can see kind of like when when I talk about digital tools and stuff. Like this is what I'm starting from. This is a sketch that I did in Photoshop. It's just a line drawing that I colored. It's literally just like a really quick line sketch. Okay. Okay. That I okay. filled in with color to play around with what. So. Everything that happens in the picture, at least in the beginning, is is defined by two positions. One is that warm light that is going to be coming out of that hole, that yellow light that's coming out of the hole. And then everything else is illuminated indirectly by the cool sky. I'm trying to, I'm going left and right here, but it looks like I'm, I'm looking at my hands going backwards to what I'm seeing. This all of the, this kind of violety sky is illuminating everything that isn't getting illuminated by the yellow light that's happening here. So, I'm basically just kind of like replicating the early stages of that here. You can see I'm just kind of like doing a little bit of a contour drawing and then filling in basically what is just local colors.
2: Okay.
4: Uh,
3: and so everything I'm not gonna there won't be any sketch that is more developed than that really simple color sketch that I just showed you because everything that's going to get developed within the picture is going to get developed on the surface, but all of the color relationships and the tonal relationships are going to be set up by those early first decisions, which is that in here in this circular space is going to be a bright, warm, yellowish light coming out of it. So anything that has, that has angular access to that light source is going to get, be getting bright and warm. And everything that doesn't have access to that is going to be getting illuminated by the sky dome, which is going to be this kind of violety blue. So from that initial position of like dominant light source is warm, bright, and yellowish, everything else that doesn't have access to that light source is going to be getting illuminated by this brighter, I mean, by, a, by a darker uh, violet cool is going to fill all of the shadow masses. So if I, as I have those two starting positions, I know exactly what, well, I don't know exactly, but I know enough about any object that I choose to kind of stick in here about how to start to develop its color and its tonal relationships to everything else. Um, you know, there's a couple other ones. I'll walk this over so you guys can see, not for, not for the audience, obviously, but same thing I'm doing with these two over here. Like... These are kind of two early on ones. Uh, you, can actually, you can actually go on my Instagram and see like the first pass of this one. And it's just as crude as that one there. Uh, and then this is, the, this is the other one that I'm working on. And they're like probably halfway, maybe, I think. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll probably spend amazing. a lot more time... I mean, I would say halfway and that the picture is halfway done, but the second half of the picture I spent a lot more time in than the first half of the picture. So it's by 50% done, I mean, it's only 20% done. But so like that one is I'm just filling in those early local color things and I'm going to keep doing pass after pass after pass. And then eventually, you know, you get enough passes in, they start to, you know, take on the more complexity of something like this, where I've got a light source that's illuminating stuff in the foreground. And then I've got another light source, which is the sky, which is shining down and illuminating all this other stuff. Cool. So from those initial starting positions of, you know, what is my ambient illumination color temperature versus my kind of like key, you know, if I have like a direct illumination in it, kind of like I'm getting directly illuminated from there. If I have one of those, what's the two? What's the relationship between the two? And that gives me a conceptual starting. Sorry, let me plug this in so I don't lose everything here. That gives me a conceptual starting position for how to think about color and value of any imaginary narrative object that I want to insert in the scene. And there are some times where, like I said, where, you know, if I have a highly reflective surface and I think... There was a moment in that there was a painting I did for Polson this summer that you can, it's called the authorship test. You can go on my Instagram and look on it where there's this kind of big, weird, transparent mushroom shape that is kind of growing out of the ground. And there's two statues that are kind of laying on the ground and the way that the mushroom shape is going over them, it's semi-reflective. And I really wasn't confident about the way I was thinking about the reflections of those shapes. So it was a great moment to like open up blender put in a tube that was bending a little bit. And then I just took like a photo of that part of the painting and I put it flat on a, um, a, a like a 2d plane in blender and split it underneath the mushroom and had the glossiness on the mushroom turn on. And I just got a sense of how those two sculptural figures would like bend in space and how big they would be on the mushroom. And it was like, okay, Commit it to memory, shut the whole thing down and now replicate your understanding of that reflection within the grammar that's already established within the picture. Because what I don't want is I don't want like multiple, you know, I don't want the voice of multiple kinds of technologies competing within the same picture. I want everything to be filtered through like my meat renderer and then end up on the surface. And I should remind you, like, this is a 35-year-old obsessive commitment. This isn't something that I just was like, I want to pick up this stuff and start making paintings like this. It's been this really, really long trajectory of, like, appropriating a conceptual model for how perspective works, appropriating a conceptual model for how reflections work, appropriating a conceptual model for how, you know, transparency works. And over time, you make more and more paintings – that deal with the same vocabulary and you beat your head against the wall enough and you start, you know when it doesn't look right and you keep hacking, hacking away at it until it doesn't look wrong anymore uh, and you compare it against the real and eventually you kind of start to develop a language. And so it's been 35 years of a desire to not want to have to rely on the technology or the reference to be the final arbiter you know, in the in the way that the image works. Dina, I tell you. Did you
5: always know the kind of paintings you wanted to make? Was it a matter of sort of acquiring the right tools, acquiring the right vocabulary? Uh, like, um, 35 year obsession. Like, did you know what direction you were headed towards?
3: You know, it, it's funny because I'm, I'm putting together uh, my first monograph right now. Um, and I've been I've been called a lot of different types of, I've been, I've been labeled a bunch of different types of things, you know. In the beginning, I was like, yeah, he's that tiny, he makes these little imaginary landscapes. And then he was the, he made a bunch of like disaster paintings. And then he was like a climate change guy. And then he was a post-apocalyptic painter. And then he was like that cinematic sci-fi guy. And now I'm like, I, I think there's, I haven't really heard any one label yet, but there, I'm like, I'm in my mind, I'm trying to kind of like, I keep trying to, there are things that I appreciate about each one of those labels, but at the same time, I'm also like, Oh, that's not quite right. I want to move the idea forward in a way like they help. It helps me kind of peel the next layer of the onion, onion off. So I, I would say,
4: um, I've,
3: there are definitely pictures that I know I want to make that come to me very clear with a real clarity. Uh, But most of them are more like a kind of a fuzzy echo and they come about within the making of it. You know, like the position that I end up with is if you squint, it's similar to the position that I saw when I started. But if you really look at it in, in detail, it can be it's a very different thing because it's a lot of it is an emergent part of the process uh, because i'm not i'm not there's no like none of my paintings have like a finished thing that they're trying to be there there's you know I've certainly like if i'm gonna if I'm gonna have an animal in the picture, I've got a bunch of different drawings and photos of animals on the wall that I'm looking at while I'm making the thing, but ultimately that animal has to fit the lighting model and the color space and the kind of action that's happening in the picture. So it's really been filtered mostly through my own, um, you know, to use kind of bad cinematic terms, like my own uh, animation and rendering uh, software uh, in, in my head. Uh, But that was a deliberate decision to kind of like appropriate all this stuff. But when you look at it in sequence, like through the monograph, when I'm I'm laying out the book, it feels very linear. Like where I started to where I'm at right now. There's only a couple breaks that are like, oh, that's different, you know. And one of them was when I jumped from like no figuration to figuration.
5: Um, You know, I saw uh, the first time I ever saw your work in person must have been my first year at the Academy. And you had a show at DFN uh which was down the street and I remember looking at these paintings and thinking that I want to grow up and be just like the person that made them no I I mean I was painting small landscapes at the time but work on your beard
3: yeah
5: oh god that one was in in progress for years (laughs) but um the but what it felt like back then is that like I was trying to figure all this stuff out and you were there, like you, you were at the goal, you were at the the kind of like, like this person figured it out. And then the next time I saw your work, it felt like it changed, you know, it changed it. like you were also there, but you were in a totally different place. Yeah. And it, it just feels like you, you know, it, it's kept morphing. Like you remain you, and your paintings—you know—they've you know, always been masterful. They've always been imaginative. But you're right. Like, like it, it might make total linear sense to you, but to me, it always felt like you arrived at a, at an entirely new location, basically every few years. So.
3: Yeah, I, I, you know, well, thank you. That, that's that's really lovely to hear you say that. Um, uh, and in a way. Uh, part of that speaks to the nature of obsession which is like it's not a real obsession if you ever actually arrive at the thing you're obsessed about you know like it, the it's obsession is a, a is a verb and not a noun nobody
5: nobody ever told me this right i i wish someone like you know i wish i could go back to myself at like 22 and be and just be like you don't arrive, you you will never feel like you arrive you will never like i have very recently uh, painted something very very small in a way that like you know I think I would have liked to have painted at like 20 or something and I was like am, am I there yet am I there yet is this it <laughs> but, but yeah you're, you're right like I wish someone like told people that like maybe once you feel like you're there you stop being obsessed or may, may, maybe you want to do something else
3: it's a very uncomfortable position though to be in I think you know and I think like life life if you're not an artist is really difficult and then you throw being an artist on top of that. Well, you throw anything creative in on top of that. I mean, I'm being a parent. I'm not a parent, but I know I'm watching my parents and other parents like being a parent is incredibly difficult. Try being a parent and an artist, try being a parent and an artist and something that, you know, like life, life without life at its most basic level can be incredibly difficult. And asking somebody to like, you're a pretty good artist, but you'd be even better if you allowed yourself to be even more uncomfortable all of the time. You know, that's a huge thing to ask of anybody. And, and and I, I talk to people about this in my own class. Like I, I don't want to impose on it. I, first of all, I don't want to make artists that look like me. I want to make artists that have an understanding of their ideas and their materials to the degree that they don't ever have to Say no to an idea because they don't know how to make it real. You know, that's my goal. My other goal is I don't ever want to impose on anybody a life of kind of like metacontextual examinative misery. Like that, (laughs) like you either, you either are that way or you're not. I certainly don't want to suggest that that's how you can become a better artist. However, uh, I realized a long time ago and some people have probably heard me say this before, but like I realized I was never going to be an artist that was going to get rid of doubt. Um, Doubt was always going to be there. Uh, You know, there's things I'm confident about and there's things that I'm not afraid of, but I also know that doubt is there to stay. It's a part of me. It's a part of my wiring. I'm, I'm 47 years old. Like it's, there, and you can either make doubt your friend, or I mean, your lover, or a like, you know the your the the Baba Yaga, you know, of your life. And I wanted to make it a lover because it's going to be there. You might as well have a working relationship with it. And there are times when doubt gets to pick where we go to dinner, and there are times when I choose the movie that me and doubt watch together. You know. And for me, that's, that's the way I make peace with the fact that I'm never going to really arrive at the thing that I'm obsessed with, partly because I am part of the obsession is the desire to want to get, you know, I've talked about this with my work before, but it's really true. You know, like I, I am both in awe of how the, the, the human neurological sensory acquisition apparatus that we have and how we process all that information to make a working model of reality, reality in our head that is good enough that we can all kind of like get down the street and feed ourselves and make babies and make a society. Like it's it's incredibly beautiful that we have like two holes, two holes, two holes and a hole and and proby things that like pick up enough information for us to like make life a little better every day if we want to. However, I'm also, I, I really, really deeply want to have a greater access to reality than that whole sensory model gives me access to, despite the fact that I know that if I did have more access than that gives me access to, it would probably be a bad thing and I would collapse in a puddle on the floor. Uh, and that's that, because my obsession is partly there, I know that I'm always absorbing I'm always adding to that mental model because my understanding of my own perception is changing as I get older and as I kind of learn more about it. And if the model in my head of reality is continuously changing based on my understanding of how I acquire that data, then the things that I'm making here are always going to be changing and I can try to lock them into place to protect my brand or I can allow that model and the way it changes to make me to put me in the really uncomfortable positions with the paintings I'm making, because it's like, Oh my God, I'm seeing things. I, I like people are going to look at this work and be like, you know, like you said, every couple of years, people are going to be like, is this the same guy that I saw at that show at the event? But I'm hoping that I can build into them, you know, enough entry points so that, and I can, Seduce you into spending just enough time with the picture so that you can kind of overwrite the new experience, overwrites the old experience enough where you allow yourself to update your model of me in your interior model the way I'm allowing my idea of the world to be updated and then make kind of a new picture about that. So it all comes back down to like me being my own first viewer. And so if I can seduce myself out of that doubt into a place of like, you know, this is totally new and it feels terrifying. But at the same time, if I let go of the idea of what this thing should be based on what my old things were, or based on, you know, what sold or what didn't sold or what got the most amount of likes on Instagram, if I can let go of all that and just look at the thing, let my let my neuroperceptual apparatus be seduced. If I can do that, then I feel like there's at least half a dozen other people out there that it can do the same thing to. It's an
2: exciting way of thinking, like, because that is your inspiration. You're, you're, it's like, we've all seen artists in art history and uh, peers and things that just sort of like got somewhere and just plateaued there. And there's a dissatisfaction with that internally and, people viewing it. And the way that you're talking is you're constantly changing. Why doesn't your art constantly change and just integrate it and just live a life that you're carrying your art process through and it's moving with you. I find that extremely exciting. I mean,
3: that's certainly the way that I've, that's where, well, like I said, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways in this world to spend your time, you know, uh, and there's a there's, you know, uh, what was it that I, did you, did, did anybody, I'm, I'm asking this to your audience, but I'll ask it to the two of you. Did either of you see that the Nicolas Cage movie, Pig? Actually, really, it's a really beautiful film. It's very good. And it undermines so many of the tropes that you come to expect with this kind of films. And it's also beautiful in the sense that, like, it's at the core of a lot of my own thinking about stuff. Like, it manages... The third act climax that we come to expect, without any type of conflict or violence, it's like a battle won through pure empathy, and it's beautiful. It's like exactly the kind of thing that I feel like I need, and that society would could benefit from um, right now. But uh, I, you know, reserve the right to be critical. Of anything that I'm not that I don't um, find interest in or that I think is kind of like misguided in in the arts, uh, as I think we all should you know where we should be free to be able to kind of like respond to work on an emotional and an intellectual level to whatever degree we can argue within ourselves outside of that anybody who can figure out how to make a healthy living for themselves and their family in this you know, within the arts, like, God bless you, like more power to you, you know? Uh, So for me, there's plenty of artists who um, do get locked into that place where they don't allow themselves to grow or they're not interested in growing, or at least maybe from me, it doesn't look like they're, they might think they're growing, you know, uh, like you couldn't imagine. But from my position, maybe I don't feel like they're growing um, i certainly you know if if that's the place where they've arrived where they can kind of uh, support themselves and their family and meet their responsibilities like you know that's a real part of life in the world that we live in there's no i would love a better solution to existence than kind of like late stage capitalism and there's a lot of great ideas but none of it's in action so uh, i certainly am am not going to kind of Uh, think less of somebody who's in a position where they have to protect their brand in order to protect their livelihood. But that's not really what I'm, that's not why I'm here. There's other things I could be doing, partly because I did work in the film industry for a long time. And I know what it's like to be in a place where you work hard, but there's a lot of, you can make a great living in the film industry uh, as a visual artist. But, you know, you're probably going to end up within a mechanism that wants you to kind of protect the brand more than it does to change and explore. And that's where I want to be. Um, and, 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 And Pig is a movie that is not interested in protecting the brand in that way. So that's kind of how it fit around.
5: I feel like it's a little... I don't know, curious and maybe a little bit sad that, you know, because as artists here, I mean, everyone is constantly evolving, right? Not just artists, but as artists, almost like the stereotype is that you, you try this, you try that, you experiment. And and it's curious that one of the ways to consistently make a living is to find a little like pigeonhole and never, ever change. Right. But also I wonder if that's becoming a, an outdated method of being being a gallery or being an artist if you're kind of like 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 maybe you're allowed to reinvent yourself a little bit more
2: yeah so you said something one time we we were at a gallery together and you had just talked at, in a class you were and it was about believable space and I don't know if you quite remember this but this example I think about it constantly and I want our listeners to hear it and I sort of want me to have a refresher. So the issue was you had a student who was painting the model in the room and I remember you described it like it had a real fiery atmosphere as if it was like smoke and char billowing in and, but it wasn't the atmosphere that matched the room. The color of yellow and brown in the background was doing it. And you cooled it down and all of a sudden you achieved believable space for the student. Do you remember
3: that example? Uh, I don't know if I remember that specific example because it's something that, you know, that happens, you know, kind of regularly. But if if you're talking about the, it probably was a disconnect between, so it in a, in a in a you know in a classroom situation, if we're working from the model, I tend to try to have a single, overpowering direct source of illumination.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: It could be warm, it could be cool. It's usually warm because of the high-powered lights tend to be more tungsten bulb-driven. Now we have a lot of LED lights, so it can kind of be whatever color temperature you want. But the traditionally it would have been something like a, a bright, you know. 300 watt bulb or something like that, tungsten right. bulb in an overhead classroom spot. And the rest of the light sources in the room are probably like cool light spilling in from around the edges of the windows. Cause we try to keep them controlled, like board. We have like foam panels we put in the windows, but then a lot of like the ambient, cool skylight bleeds in. There might be some like fluorescence on just so people can see their palettes. But I try to I try to control as much light as possible, but usually what happens is you have a really strong direct light source that's warm, and then the ambient light in the room is less warm than that light source, so it ends up being cool, despite the Mm -hmm. fact that it might not be bluish. It's it's just not as warm as the light source. So I bet you that the student had a really, really warm ground Or the environment, the negative space around the figure was really warm. If this sounds correct, or if it sounds wrong, let me know. And that the light mass was warm, but bright. The negative space was really warm also, but maybe not as bright, probably darker to to be negative space. But then the core shadows on the figure were probably really cool or much cooler than the ambient negative space was behind the figure. And so what there was, was a big disconnect between, you know, the core shadow is telling you what the ambient illumination overall in the room is because the only light that is filling the core shadow is the general ambient illumination in the room. That isn't like the direct light source, like that light here. And it's not the light bouncing back from that light source. So like, you know, direct illumination, reflected light from the same light source and my core shadow in here. So the core shadow was telling you what the ambient illumination in the room is. And usually what it ends up being is like warm light source and either warmer reflected light or cool reflected light. And then you have neutral core shadow. Usually if you have a really chromatic room, like you can have a room that is filled with like red paint. And if that Ambient light is bouncing around the red paint. The ambient light in the room is going to be really red. And if you put like a cool light on someone in a red room and you got a lot of red light bouncing around, that core shadow can actually be really, really warm or saturated. But usually it's kind of neutral because most of the time in a real world space, our light sources aren't that narrow of a spectrum. They're either like a warm white or a cool white, you know, which means when they mix, they create a neutral that fills the whole space. So core shadows in most real world situations tend to be kind of neutral. So core shadow is saying neutral, and the negative space behind them is saying really, really warm. And so one of the two of those to be illusionistic space, either the core shadow has to warm up to match what the, what the ambient space is telling you, or the ambient space has to cool down and get more neutral to the way the core shadow was. And I think what we did was we just neutralized the negative space around the figure a bit so that your eyes... It's ma- exactly, it's matching the color temperature and kind of like value structure of the core shadow. And then it, then two of them kind of are existing in the same space and the, the, the negative space around the figure becomes atmosphere and it becomes space and it doesn't become surface of the picture anymore or less so. You know, I think that's what we were talking about, but that again is about the interesting thing about this in, in the kind of pictures that I make is that, you know, if you're doing like a crop, On a model like this, you know, like a bust crop, you might not be seeing much of the negative space around them. And you're definitely not seeing anything in the room this way that might be filling their core shadows. Right. So you're just taking what you're seeing, which works because all the information is is taken from the information is getting to your eye from outside of your composition. When you're making this stuff up, you you have to define what is happening outside of the picture. So that if there's if you're making up a figure with a core shadow that's facing the viewer, that means that that core shadow is getting illuminated by space, the light in space that presumably extends out to where the viewer is. So you're you essentially when you're working imaginatively, and again, there's a lot of people who make really great work working from imagination who do not give a shit about the kind of things that I'm caring about, and their work is amazing, right I'm Only speaking from my own set of obsessions. And what I'm obsessed with is, okay, what are the things what are the things that end up in a picture, that create a sensory experience for the viewer that don't come from within the picture? They come from outside of the picture, integrating themselves on top of or alongside things that are in the picture so at what point does my own understanding of the world that i'm building have to extend beyond the four corners of the picture and how far out is it relevant for them to go that's that's a big part of when people talk about like oh do you do a lot of planning for your pictures it's like yeah i do do a lot of planning but my planning is often that kind of stuff rather than just like is the is the mountain range going to go from top left to bottom right or top right to bottom left it's like what is not in the picture that is going to be influencing how you understand what the mountain range looks like. But it's like, I love it. And
2: I love how you described it in your know-how, because it's things that I'm interested in from a, so there's two tracks that this runs. I think one's technical and one's almost memory based. Like Yeah. People will say, my colors are muddy, and it's like, there's no such thing as a muddy color. It's just the wrong temperature in the wrong spot. And you're talking about a structure that will give an image clear, breathable air. It'll feel like a unified atmosphere, which then, uh, it almost like, um, it appeals to certain memories that they've had and gives you certain feelings once There's a clarity there, and I don't think we have access to those feelings in work that is representational unless there is some sort of a clarity that that appeals to a sense memory they have or visual memory, and I think that's what's so interesting about your work because it is quite fantastic, but it appeals to places we've been to, and I think that's something very sophisticated because it, like, like I was saying about Blender, learning that it doesn't appeal to what I've learned about Blender or photoshopping. It appeals to real rooms that we've been, but they're right. made up spaces, and that's right. that's a lot to take on.
3: Yeah, <laughs> no, I know. I, I, and again, I, like I said, I've been this. You're that's a that's a great way that you put it in that it's about like. It's not about, you know, well, first of all, another thing that I try to talk about is like, I I don't, I don't want to have like arbitrary belief systems. Like the proof is in the pudding. Things either work or they don't. When I come up with these like memory based rules, if they're not working, they're not worth having. If they don't activate an emotional response, Mm. not that important.
4: You know, realism yeah.
3: in and of itself is not inherently interesting it's only interesting it's only meaningful when it activates your limbic system in terms of uh, of generating or referencing emotional content you know otherwise it's kind of like you know you're creating a checklist that needs to be met for arbitrary reasons rather than a checklist that builds up to a kind of communicative emotional experience and For me, I love the generation of emotional experiences that come from a sense of time and place. And a time and place that is, like you said, at once, like the, the, the narrative that's taking place in the picture is unfamiliar to you, but the quality of space and of light in that space is absolutely familiar to you. And so it immediately shortens the distance between the narrative event and the emotional impact of that event, you know, it, it's a way to cut through unfamiliarity. It's a way to, it's a way to, you know, I'm trying to use those perceptual, that perceptual shorthand as a way to take an interiority and externalize it. And then I'm relying on it to, as an external thing, to force itself into your interiority as a viewer. hmm Through through that perceptual commonality, that shorthand of like, we all recognize we're wired. Our monkey brain is wired to understand the difference between fog enveloping a person or an object. Like what happens to a tree when it is enveloped by fog in a morning when that tree is now silhouetted but not separated from the atmosphere by very much value? Right. versus versus, if we had a tree that was painted the color of fog against a white wall, you know, like they're very close to each other, but there's just enough perceptual difference because of the grammar of both situations that we can understand the difference between the two. The magic is when you can kind of like squeeze it right in there and you're not really sure where one begins and where one ends, you know, like that holding of stability within a picture is also a tool to be employed, but I I try to do it in a conscious and deliberate way rather than as an accidental thing, you know? Uh, Yeah.
2: It's very, it's very beautiful way of thinking to me. Like it's, it's rigorous and a little daunting to, to attempt, but it is like, I love the idea. Like what I'm exploring right now is shape and color and how, There is an emotional response we get from a certain shape placed in a certain place. And that's the narratives that I'm thinking about. It doesn't need a story of a person doing something. I'm trying to give a feeling just where colors and shape are placed. And what you're saying is exciting to me because it's almost like another, uh, another layer on top of that, just unifying that space and making it feel appeal to something that someone would have a memory to. I think some painting like yours doesn't do it at all, but some painting with figurative and narrative can get really cheesy because it feels like they're trying so hard to tell you a story about this person doing that. And maybe we're not terribly interested in those feelings or those stories. And I think there's, I don't know, I'm trying to get the heart of it in this conversation, but there's something that your paintings transcend and they're just some nice human feelings in a very improbable space that I'm, I'm, I would desire that for my own work for sure, or an ability to get there, you know?
3: Uh, Well, thank you. That's beautiful um, to hear because you're, you know, you're speaking to, you know, you're, I have all these impulses within my work, but I don't always I'm not always in a position to have to describe them to myself with clarity. So to hear someone else, you know, clarify their feeling about my work and have it overlap with my own clarified understanding is a really meaningful thing. I appreciate that. Um, but I think you're you're right in that um, I I didn't, you know, if you look at the first half of my, let's just say I've been making work for roughly twenty years since grad school, the first half of my work didn't have any people in, it.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: and that was really deliberate because I didn't want to employ the figure in a way that um, presumed that the kind of like art historical uh, employment of figuration. Hadn't been rendered ineffective, or or was unquestioned. You know, I think part of it is it's like, um, you know, it's it's easy to be like, well, film happened and narrative art became a radically different proposition. It's not. It's, yes, film was the dominant visual language of the twentieth century, but that's not for me. It's it's more than that, and it. Part of it comes back down to, again, this idea that the environment that our neuroperceptual modeling apparatus evolved in doesn't really exist anymore. You know, like the last hundred years has seen such rapid technological, environmental, social development that like the 150 people living in a little river valley for generations on end that that really delicate context that the 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 homo sapien um uh complex nervous system and and social communicative uh, facility developed in doesn't we don't we don't operate in that space anymore and and one of the most powerful, you know, people always ask me, you know, because of a, a lot of my work, especially earlier on, and still now a bit, um, has to do with this kind of like, you know, juxtapositioning of like the technological and the or or the, the natural and the man-made, the technological and the non-technological. And like, you know, what is the most, there's this age-old question in, in a lot of history classes, like what is the most powerful or the most significant technology ever developed? You know, and some people say, oh, it was, you know, you could say the wheel or you could say, hey, you know, uh, the way that hay allowed for the development of using uh, livestock as an engine because there was like a battery that would allow them to kind of like be used as a motor during the winter when there was no food. Store. Like that radically changed stuff. But for me, really, storytelling and the power of storytelling is the most significant technology that was ever developed by humans in the last we've seen storytelling get weaponized in the last decade you know, uh, as a way to kind of overwrite a lot of these presumed models about reality. And so, um, a big thing for me was like the feeling that alongside the fail. And I, you know, I talk about the, the perceptual model that, that we, our whole body evolved into doesn't really function anymore because the context is different. What, really what I mean by that is like we evolved to function well in small groups and being able to identify threats Yes. really well that, that face those small groups. The threats that face small groups that we evolved for 200,000 years to identify really well are totally insignificant against these much larger threats that we did not evolve to be able to identify it. And and the only way we're going to make it out of this um, uh, great filter potentially is uh, by identifying those larger threats and working together to mitigate them. And for me, I think, I thought the stories, many of the stories that we held on to that come out of this earlier period of threat identification are amazing and beautiful stories. And they teach us a lot, but they also reinforce a lot of the understanding about small threats and they don't really adequately tell the stories that we need to tell ourselves about big threats. And so my desire to want to integrate figures in was to make sure that they somehow did not reinforce or started to move away from narratives that I feel like are poetic and beautiful and a fundamental part of our collective culture, but they're no longer relevant in helping us identify the threats that we're facing as a global culture.
2: which, to your point, are almost unprocessable. Like correct, spider yes. was to they're, jump. They're, yes, if I I would jump and I would deal with that threat. But if uh, climate change and should they're I? So,
3: they're so abstract. They're so big. They might as well be invisible to us. What are we gonna do with that? You know, it's, right. it's, And
2: and now, like information is coming in. I I feel like. I'm so, I'm, I'm patient with myself and humans because we don't know much and there's so many big unknowns. And like, I'll talk to, you know, someone like my dad who's quite certain about things from a very, like his story is very religious and very, this is bad. This is evil. That doesn't happen. That will never happen. He's just so certain. And I'm like, I don't think we know anything right now. (laughs) I think we're, it a very in a very crazy place where there's so much information and it's not answering the big questions of existence fundamentally but we're
3: just so saturated and
2: confused and it's like we're taxed you know we're maxed
3: out which is why especially in the earlier works where the figure showed up it was a lot of figures caught in positions of uncertainty you know where their actions were not um, uh, kind of like a paradigmatic uh, kind of icono poetic extrapolation of the, uh, the hero's journey or of like the agency of the individual in a universe that, that really cares about you or that is just helping that wants to just, just point you in the right direction to your own salvation. Like they're much more about figures that are kind of caught in the realization that all you, all you have is you and all we have is us. And if we don't accept that as uh, the kind of the, um, the base material for change and for solutions, then um, it's, going to get uh you know we're we're, we're just going to create more and more solu- more and more invisible problems that we're going to have a harder and harder time finding solutions to because of the the sheer abstraction of the problem itself like you mm-hmm. said we're not wired to deal you know big number theory is uh, you know we we you look at like climate change, you look at COVID, you know, you look at just, um, environmental regulation, like all of these things involve scales and abstractions that are not, you said, you're not, we're not wired to process them, you know, like they're so far removed from the, you know, six foot, 10 foot Quarter mile bubble that we've evolved to kind of be able to process, like that's the bandwidth for human threat detection. Um, and you know, uh, a big, mo- you know, to not to not to kind of not that this is um, it's a little coincidental, I guess, but that you know, we, we just had 9 11's 20th anniversary, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I happened to be going to the academy right then and I was watching as the first plane flew right overhead and hit the first tower. and. Had a pair of binoculars in my backpack because I was still a tourist and I watched the second plane come around and hit from behind and watched wow. the first. We were, I was downtown right by the Academy when the first tower fell and my friends and I from my first meter were like running up Broadway, you know, to kind of like stay ahead of the exodus of lower Manhattan. And it's not that that event changed the kind of work that I wanted to make, but it was that kind of event that set, you know, kind of validated Um, it kind of closed the distance between the kind of ecology of the self and it made visible for a moment the scale of um, influence to change our local environment, non-locally, the way that humans now have for the first time in history, you know, obviously started with you know, earlier on with weaponizing things like smallpox or obviously the atomic bomb or just the sheer scale of devastation of, of, of World War I. But like those were all more or less kind of like state actors. And here we have like non-state actors can enact change on a state scale. And it was like, boom, all of a sudden this, this was like the, the intimate scale of the daily life of being a human being was like, being was like pulled back to a much grander level of change that was symbolic and representative of, you know, the kind of challenge of change that we're seeing right now between global pandemics and climate change. And so I don't have any solutions to these things. Um, Very few people do. These are incredibly different. You can't, there's no easy solution to a complex problem, but we're wired. I mean, everybody, everybody wants an easy solution to a complex problem. Uh, And so a big part of the picture, big part of the pictures that I've been making for the last decade, at least have been about, like I said, just trying to exteriorize an interiority that I have, which is this kind of deep anxiety about having, knowing that there's a scale of challenge that we're facing that is so big that it's almost impossible to see. And you know these are existential problems that go all the way back and before the Greeks. Um, uh, you know, on a philosophical level, you know and on a narrative level, I mean you look at the history of mythology you know and the, and the kind of like there's the grand stage on which the tiny human plays out their dramas on, but in the in mythology, there was always another another set of conscious human like entities that Shorten the distance between the finite and the infinite, and, and granted humans for a moment visibility of, you know, the whole thing. And then they were they make it through their their hero's journey, and they bring the the knowledge of the whole back down to the, or they bring the knowledge of the finite back down to the, to the knowledge of the infinite back down to the finite.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: the story ends, you know, uh, often on a on a positive note. And for me, those stories. Um, don't really, um, uh, aren't sufficient uh, as kind of like cultural touchstones anymore. And I'm trying to make pictures. I don't want to presume that I'm making pictures that are kind of about, uh, that presents a new narrative. I'm just trying to make pictures about my feeling that a new narrative is needed. If that makes sense.
2: And do you feel, okay, I feel this in your work, and do you feel it that, that what you do honors like no one has those big answers, like you said, when you said you don't have answers, but we could bring a piece in. And I think art has always been a big piece for catalyst for change, for evolution, for whatever we do as a species. And I think yours honors humans. It honors a human spirit. It honors humanity in the midst of adversity, which is Somewhat Greek in a way, but it's like it's it's a step further because I don't know. I, I'm I'm not slagging on anyone's work, but I, I think some of those things, like very Greek mythologized paintings, that are very prevalent and figurative that are just sort of they don't communicate a lot to me, but I do appreciate this search you're on to honor humans and bring in the the challenges that they face like that's something really beautiful i was i and I, on a i was listening to do you know that writer jonathan franzen yeah
4: oh yeah
2: he's he's on this climate change kick and he's basically saying you know it's over like we turned a corner and it's going to get worse but He says there's something beautiful in embracing the an overness and just appreciating what you have while it's here. And it's such a wild way to look and talk about it, but it is there is something that when you say it's done, you can all of a sudden like appreciate it or whatever. And maybe that's the change that needs to happen. You know, just looking around and loving every minute in everybody and like growing that way, you
3: know? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I think you're right in, in the sense that, and, I, you know, I also, this is also why I think I was really drawn to the, to the movie Pig was, it was a resolution of conflict to pure empathy and, and the deep change of acknowledging uh, that we are all we have. You know, and <laughs> yes. when we are all we have, everybody becomes important. Um, obviously, there are always going to be people whose ideology trumps any kind of evolution of them as an individual. But I think for the most part, um, uh, we all resp- and, and we gets back. It comes back to storytelling. I mean, we all respond um, to the to the beauty of individuals triumphing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, whether, whether or not that means their own demise or whatever, but like the, oh, the, the the individual accepting the challenge presented in front of them and the decisions that they make evoking deep empathy in the viewer, that, that is, that is not changed. That will not change because we're, we're like, we're still, uh, we're, that's the one thing about our wiring that I feel actually good about.
4: Yes. Uh,
3: despite everything else, and I, and I feel like to, I uh, maybe not. I, I I'm the last six years is maybe pretty cynical, mm-hmm. but I'm not cynical enough to necessarily take um, the position that it's over. Uh, I certainly don't think there's like going to be a return to normal. Right, Like, I don't think we're ever going to go back, but I do feel like there's going to be a radically different, and well, there already is a radically different landscape that we're going to have to evolve to be able to interact with predictably very quickly. Uh, the, my, The thing that I see maybe as a potentially incredibly powerful and beautiful moment for us all is that, and this is maybe the only positive thing that can come out of this is maybe for the first time in human history, we can actually have an enemy that isn't a person or a people. I don't expect us to rewrite our, like there's enough of us on a, in terms of a lizard brain, a monkey brain, a person brain that, you know, we will fight for what we believe in terms of our own survival. But this is the first potential moment in human history where the thing we have to fight doesn't have to be another person, another people, another nation. And that's, if we can get through, if we can embrace that and get through that and allow it to collectively kind of, um, You know, weaponize our instincts for the first time alongside each other rather than against each other. Uh, I have a lot of hope Mm -hmm. with that model, Um, but I think that the stories that we tell have to change to get us there. Uh, I I think what you
2: said just sort of it passed by. I wanna, I wanna like put a pin in it because humans attempting something. And you were even like, whether, you know, it fails or it might cost your life or whatever. But just like, we're so remarkable and we deserve, I don't know, we, that deserves honoring that we attempt things as crazy as they can be, you know, like, or as loving or whatever. And I feel like there is your work like yours that honors those attempts and is not cynical, and that is sh- that that points at that and says, This is a way forward. That in this age where I do feel like technology, like social media and stuff, is almost weaponized against us to cater to our most basic oh, yeah. impulses, yeah. And we get so that is what we are fed, whether we like it or not, it's just there. But then to look at a painting and be like, hey, you know what? We're pretty, we try, you know, we constantly try. And and we could we could take that as a given and move forward, or we could let these these machines that we built continue to fracture us and bring us into cells and say, those people aren't worth anything. These people are worth something. I'm with these people. We're doing this. It's so it's so prevalent. And I think what you're, the language you're working in is a way forward. It's just saying, Hey, you know what, let's, we got some big hurdles. Let's, we can try human spirit will not get knocked down, but we can't let it, we can't dissolve into these things we're building, you know?
3: You know, and and I think the other thing too, it's, um,
4: you know, uh,
3: it's, it's really, really hard. Like you can't arrive at these conclusions without artificially creating um, a kind of enough space in your life physically and psychologically to contemplate macro survival rather than like micro survival. You know, Um, I've, funnel, I've made decisions in my life to funnel my, my entire life into the studio, you know, uh, from having, from leaving the film industry, from decisions I made after graduate school, um, to the kinds of relationships that I've tried to seek with other galleries and stuff, to, the you know, I, I work, I do freelance in the advertising industry. I teach one class a semester. So I, I, I try to make decisions so that my entire life gets funneled into the studio. And the studio allows me it's a disconnection enough from the real world that I can isolate and contemplate macro survival. I can contemplate like I, I I can I make time and space that it's dedicated purely to kind of like a meta awareness about myself and the place in the world in it. That's a huge privilege. I completely like that that is that that has taken so much effort. Culturally, in in terms of the decisions my parents made, the decisions I've made, the decisions that people have made who along the way have been like, you know, I really like you. I want to, you know, or I want to go to lunch with you and I want to change your life in this way. Whatever, all the, it took all of, it's an incredible privilege to be able to to carve out the time in my life that I do on a weekly basis to be able to ask myself and engage myself the way that I do. I I completely recognize that because, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Scandinavia in the last, you know, half decade working with galleries in in Scandinavia. And, you know, it's this much smaller, you know, the the population of Denmark is roughly the same size as like Staten Island and Brooklyn put together. It's tiny. Mm -hmm. Um, You can run the economy of your country very differently when you're only dealing with 5 million people. So this is not like a, They do this, we do, this isn't comparing apples. This is, that's comparing apples and oranges or maybe like apples and hubcaps. It's like, but I do feel like we're at a place within the, the kind of American model of the Western world where it is so incredibly difficult for most people to be able to carve out enough physical and psychological security. Mostly, often it's psychological security within themselves to wake up every day and go, okay, I'm putting all these fears aside and I want to try to see the world the way it actually is so that I can make decisions <laughs> outside of my biases. And so that I can, you know, not have all of these crazy threat filters influencing the way I deal with other people. That's a huge ask. Yeah. Also kind of part of what I think is needed. Right. So how do we get those two positions to get, we might not be able to arrive at it, but how do we keep approaching it? You know? Um, I I feel so
2: similar to you in that, in that space is a privilege. Um, Someone was asking me, why do I paint? And my answer, I I love it, but it's like, it's to learn more. I just want to learn. And Learn about the questions you're asking, learn about how to bring those into the work I'm doing, learn about technical things, how to apply paint better. And that that is a privilege, but it's not a privilege without a lot of sacrifice. Like I've given up a oh, lot yeah. to do that.
3: Yes. And it's not a it's not handed down by some golden. It's not down. Yeah. Yeah, no.
2: And I think about the people you're talking about as well. And it reminds me of a book like uh, The Denial of Death, uh, this Ernest Becker book. And he was saying that an artist, he believes, is basically a a neurotic with an outlet. Like there's something not necessarily antisocial, but these neurotic tendencies that that you don't really want the same things that other people want in terms of leader-follower dynamics. Like Donald Trump loves being a leader. But that's not going to be rewarding to me if I let. Or lend. at least the
3: center of attention.
2: At least the center of attention, yes. Exactly.
3: Unnecessary leader.
2: but. Or, or I'm not that gratified being a follower either. I just want to be with my thoughts and figure things out. Right. And I think that that is, if that's handled with integrity, there's extreme utility. If you think of a river of mainstream activity, reward systems in place for people leading and people following and your slots. And that's an overwhelming structure to be And A lot of times it's hard to pop your head up out of that. But artists can, their heads way out of that and they can comment and help that stream, you know, Just sort of like with a movie like you're talking about Pig or something, someone who doesn't have time to contemplate things is going to see Pig and think
3: about the world a little differently. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, Dave Hickey, for all of his, um, the, for those of you who don't know Dave Hickey, Dave Hickey, the art critic and art essayist, you know, I think he's um, he's certainly kind of seen as a, a kind of a dinosaur uh, these days. Maybe rightfully, maybe rightfully so, maybe not. But he's he. I've seen a couple lectures of his, and and you know, one of the points that he talks about he spoke maybe a decade ago in the city, one of the points he talked about is, um, which I think is a great metaphor, it's like artists have always, one of the purposes that artists have served is that they're the ones culturally, historically that have pointed out where the tigers are in the tall grasses. Um, You know, we're just at a point now where we don't all agree on what a tiger looks like, you know?
4: Um,
3: and part of that is just the sheer nature of, you know, the bandwidth of information acquisition has been totally overridden by, um, social media and by communication technology. Um, and then part of it is just a a culture of pluralism and, and some of it is like the legacy of postmodernism, you know, the kind of state of uncertainty that postmodernism has kind of imposed upon, um, modern society. Um, you know, to another point that he made, he said, you know, um, uh, we all agree that 80% of the art that we see is terrible, but none of us agree on the same 20% that it's great. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think that's kind of an ama- I think that's an amazing, I think that's a beautiful thing. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be operating in an industry where we all thought this, the same things were good. Um, while recognizing that there have been big chunks of art history where they were they it was closer to that kind of a model than we're in right now, so there's an incredible amount of um you know disagreement um within the not not just the visual arts but within uh all these overlapping dialogues that you see kind of um, uh bullhorned on social media. Um I think that the it comes down to how do we get how do we create an economy within social media that rewards empathy and humanization rather than dehumanization and segmentation. Um, and I would say that extends and and because you know that's not something that's exclusive to social media it's something that every other aspect of human society would benefit from you know institutionally within you know within something like an art school you know how uh, you were you, you know an art school you think would be or or in many in many uh, departments within you know the liberal arts apparatus of uh, educational apparatus uh, global apparatus, like you think that they would be the kind of like global or the cultural nucleus of, of empathy generation. Um, but we're really good at as creatures at developing uh, institutional mechanisms that continue to work against that humanization and that empathy creation. You know, um, so, uh, you know, I keep coming back to the power of storytelling. To, um, you know, people have asked me, you know, every year I get somebody in, in a class or you know, whenever I do a show, like what, what's my definition of art? You know, what is art? Um, does it have a purpose? Does it not, is it something you can quantify or objectify or not? You know, um, I think the best answer that I've, that I'd feel comfortable with is, um, just move me with the way you see the world, you know, not see as like, you know, through your eyes, literally, but like, and that, a function of that is that it—it's an empathy generator, you know. And empathy doesn't have to be created purely through beauty, you know. Empathy—it can be created through trauma and tragedy, uh, in the same way that empathy, you know, the Greeks weaponized tragedy as an empathy generator. You know, Shakespeare used uh, trauma and tragedy as an empathy generator. Um, Kurosawa used. Trauma and tragedy is an empathy generator. Anti-beauty, anti-beauty, like, um, uh, was it, uh, left them, Jonathan, who who was the author you brought up? Oh, uh, Franzen. Franzen, Jonathan, yeah, about Franzen. Franzen was talking about, you know, uh, that the trauma and tragedy of witnessing the world unmake itself brings you closer appreciating the beauty of that which is still here you know shortening that distance um Mm -hmm. and it's if anything makes me uncomfortable about the process it's like you know you know this dina knows this you know a lot of the people who listen to the podcast know this like it's finding that balance between the the obsession and the desire to kind of want to like isolate yourself and ponder these questions and make the thing versus going out into the world and allowing the other things that other people have made to create empathy within you and shorten that. Like, should there be a balance there? Is there a balance to be had there? Is it okay for me to just forego the the appreciation of the empathy generation machines that other people create so I can focus on you know, that it's about that kind of finding, making peace with that balance that I think is one of the harder things for me uh, mm. and, and COVID and the lockdown only for me, you know, my, my kind of version of uh, Franzen's Pop- proposition was like oh my god, I've never appreciated studio visits or conversations about our or or just bumping into somebody outside of a gallery in on a hot night in Chelsea and talking for 30 seconds as after having not done any of that for almost 2 years you know for 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 almost 20 years all of these mechanisms were in place that we could employ to allow us to spend 80% of our time in here going oh, I really don't know if this is going to make a difference but I got to believe that it will Mm-hmm. You know, and then you leave, you go give people hugs, you go look at work, you have a couple beers, you have some laughs, you have some cries. That it's that 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 physical dialogue between real people that makes all this these empathy generators um uh that makes that kind of like isolated production style work. All that was withheld for two years. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh and it, it I went into some I, I have to say, I'm like many of us, I probably I went into some really Different kinds of internal dialogues because of that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I'm glad it happened, and I think I it kind of maybe has reinforced some of my own beliefs about this, and also maybe purged some other ones. Um, but I feel uh, I'm both excited and maybe a little bit terrified about what you know, comes next for me, um, which, you know, in that sense, like that's, that's kind of how, where I, where, I, you know, that's part of the reason why I left the film industry. That's part of the reason why I left the West coast is like, I, I came here to use that, um, that sense of being, uh, of that, that, like that uncomfortability, that engagement, that daily engagement with doubt, uh, uh, it's a great way to, it's a great way for me to get results. Like it's, it is, it's a great taskmaster for me, you know? So having come out of, I mean, not that we're out of COVID, I, you know, who knows if this is the fourth quarter or the first quarter or no. half time or if this is just how, um, many, how many Greek letters are left. <laughs> right. You know, uh, but I, I feel like it has, um, It it is re-emphasized that I can't take any of this for granted. Yes. Very special position. Yes. It, I'm 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 really fortunate and very privileged to get to do this. But there's also, you know, it's a razor thin. Um, you know, nothing is guaranteed for me or for anybody doing this. You know, things mm-hmm. could change overnight. Uh, the ball drops really fast when it drops, we don't know how long any of us are going to be here.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And so, you know, own your kink. Don't waste any time. Only make the stuff you really want to make. Uh, and if it doesn't work, make the next thing, you know, don't look back. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we could all be doing something else.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: but very few of those other things allow us to kind of process and stay in the, in this kind of existential, hypocritical headspace that I feel like I draw a lot from you draw a lot from Dina draws a lot from, and very few, most of the artists that I know they're here because it's the only way they figured out how like that part of their head that is engaged with these questions The only way that you can live with that is by scrubbing it out on here, you know?
2: Um, And and I think it helps other people when they see that. Like, uh, I love your idea of an empathy machine, and I think that question always comes up. What about, does art have a purpose? But people don't really say that about sports or like what are sports like sports look totally different. Like some are played with a racket. Some you don't even move some. It's hard to say. But what it is, is it's humans attempting something that we get to watch and marvel at and learn what's possible. Like, you know, you have Babe Ruth showed us what's possible to do with a stick and a ball. And now, every it, people crossed that a long time ago. Now, Babe Ruth wouldn't even be competitive right now. You know, it's just the ball moves forward through our efforts. And I think if you really embrace that way of thinking, a lot of negative things go out the window—clannish behavior and whatever. Any of these things, it's just like you embrace your fellow man as. And enjoy their efforts and learn from them is, I mean, the fundamentally that's a real, one of the most beautiful things we have to marvel at. And art falls very neatly
3: into that, you know? Yeah, I mean, what, what was it? Um, Twain, Twain said, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, travel uh, is the ultimate cure to bigotry. Yes. You know, um, and art essentially, uh, you know, I mean, art is many things, but I think one of the things, if there's a Venn diagram for every every artist that has ever lived, you know, one part that they all kind of share is that art allows other people to travel into a new space that is both part of a, an imaginary kind of like invented material space that is new to existence, but also a huge chunk of it is the travel into the interiority of the artist that generated the work, you know, and where that individual begins and ends and where the culture that they existed in begins and ends are all fuzzy boundaries, you know, Uh, but that's, but it is a kind of emotional, psychological, spiritual travel. Um, And like I said, you know, it's a, we all have our tastes and we all have our values and, you know, tastes tend to change at a different speed than values do. Um, but it is very difficult to dislike the art of somebody that you really like.
4: Yeah. yeah.
3: You know, which, which goes to show you just how connected the idea of, you know, emotional proximity Human connection, human communication, intimacy, and empathy generation is really, you know, the object and the person are inseparable from each other to a certain degree. You know, yes, the intentions of the artist and the object are separable because every object becomes kind of its own thing, independent, and the read of a picture is kind of independent of the intentions of the artist, but very few art has been made that doesn't in some way evoke the narrative around the, the artist who generated the work, you know, the, on at least on a pop cultural level, you know, I mean, the, the narrative around, you know, obviously Van Gogh or some of the bigger Renaissance artists are inseparable for the interpretation of the work. Mm-hmm. Even, even somebody like, uh, you know, think about Pollock, Rothko, uh, de Kooning, Warhol, you know, you can talk about the the interpretation of the work uh, doesn't, shouldn't consider the intentions of the author, but the story of the author is so big in the collective consciousness that their intentions end up backdooring their way into the interpretation of the work anyway. So there's this kind of like churn of, you know, artwork as as a uh, exclusive object in the world and viewer and maker and story of all three of these things it becomes this kind of like smear of um uh responsive emotional responses you know and i think that that's is the core of it it's about um you know you as a person Are a story you tell yourself about you.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: You know, and for a moment you integrate in an art object into that story. And it may or may not also integrate into a story that you've already been told or tell yourself about the maker of that thing. But it ultimately becomes this bizarre and utterly miraculous fiction that's on this side of our perceptual wall that adds to this total experience of ourselves that we kind of, every time we re-examine it, we retell it in a new way, you know? Despite our hardest efforts to, like, sort, organize, and hierarchicalize the absoluteness of our understanding of our own narrative, it is constantly changing. And thank God, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And the goal, I think, is, for me, the, the, the greater role art can play in the clarity... Or, or the honesty through which we can examine our own narrative and the empathy with which we can understand the narrative of, of others, uh, there are very few things uh, in the world that don't, uh, you know, art is one of the few things, I mean, uh, you know, food can, do, you know, food can do that, um, but ultimately uh, art is one of the few things That doesn't have another overriding function other than that, you know. Um, You could argue that in the late-stage capitalistic hyperinflation of the art market, uh, that yes, it also serves as a kind of an asset class for very wealthy individuals. But like that, that's a that's that's a whole other kind of that's a whole other issue. But art, at its core, for me, um, is the kind of uh uh it's one of
4: uh a very unique uh uh
3: you know ultimately i exist permanently on this side of my sensory barrier and you exist on the other side of yours and we don't really share experiences In the real world, the way we take for granted that we do, we share, we we exchange our understandings of those experiences based on a mutually agreed upon vocabulary. You know, Mm -hmm. we're speaking in English, we have a more or less similar understanding of the words that we're using, and we kind of like link our interiorities through these sound waves, and we're trying to like sync each other's models of reality based on this, these sound waves that are bouncing back and forth and it's surprisingly effective uh-huh. you know at, at evoking emotions and realizations and 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 closing metaphorically closing that distance like you and i are, are not any physically closer than we were when we started this i feel this conversation has got me you know orders of magnitude Closer to you as an individual, just in terms of familiarity, uh, you know, overlapping positions, and just like enjoying each other's company. Yeah. But we haven't actually gotten any physically closer. But the idea of like this model and your model have, through these sound waves, have kind of like updated the narrative, my narrative about you and your narrative about me. And like, but the second we stop talking, that updating stops. Mm-hmm. But, but it can't, but you, like... But these, but these things... They'll stay. That, that thing, it's, like, embedded in space-time. And it, it resists entropy and the decay that takes place the second we, you know, hang up the phone and our voice waves aren't crossing space-time anymore. And that my own understanding of today starts to rewrite itself slowly. And your understanding, like the way that I forgot about the conversation we had about the core shadow. And then yes. so you remember that really clearly. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure I remember that, you know, <laughs> but like these things kind of embed themselves in space time in a way that no other form of communication really does. I mean, you, you could say that the that, that language does with, with writing and with, with prose, but like if you can't read that language, Mm-hmm. You know, like if Dostoevsky never got translated in English, uh, you, uh, I'd be permanently cut off from that kind of what was on the other side of that, that perceptual barrier of a guy who lived well before my time. But And, and, and with a book, like you were talking about,
2: and, and you were talking about, um, invention, technological inventions like, uh, straw and the wheel and which ones have been effective. This is all kind of looping around like the, the importance of art, art as empathy, machine delivery system, whatever, like you read Dostoevsky as a book, any author He's he's nice to bring up though, but it's like, his thoughts are in your head. Yeah. Like okay. your head, like, can you you can imagine how much empathy increased just when printed word was more accessible to people and they're like, oh my God, I'm reading what someone wrote, and it's as if I'm having those thoughts in
3: my own head. Somehow. And not just <laughs> thoughts, but like you're producing quasi-visual hallucinations. <laughs> yeah exactly. You know, like and then you open the door into bright sunlight and stepped out into the muddy street, and you're like, you know, like, Yeah, exactly. There's like I was just on
2: a beach and you know, with this guy's thoughts and now I'm back at the city on a dirty
3: right. street. It's crazy. And yeah. so I I think um again storytelling being at the core of um what makes us human because from a certain position um, other than the fact, like you are, you are a body, you're a meat. Yeah, I forget where I read this, but it was a great description. It's um, uh, you are, you are a bone neck with meat armor piloted by a wet sponge. <laughs> you know, but, but essentially we are, you know, there's the one idea that we are, you know, that, that I forget what it is. It's like, this, the actual cell count in our body, like bacterial cell count versus human cells, it's like there's 10 times as many bacterial cells by count, not by weight, in our body as there are human cells. Wow. So, in a way, you could say that we're just a big vehicle for gut bacteria to migrate around the surface of the planet. By that same logic, we are a machine. That exists to build and store a narrative, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that then tries to transfer as much of that narrative into other people before it deconstructs into mush.
2: And it's sort of overwhelming because this is such humble description of a human, but there is a spiritual component capable of contemplating its finite time and what what the ramifications of that are oh yeah that's a that's a lot to take on because you know there's something very animalistic about us and and relatively unintelligent but we do have the capacity to contemplate that that is 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 a
3: burden if you look at it that way you know oh i mean um i'm reading um I just started reading um, uh, "The Conspiracy Against the Human Race" uh, by uh, Thomas uh, Ligotti. Oh, I don't know. I'll write this down. I don't know this book. You know, he's a he's most most well known. I forget when the book came out. It's it's his first nonfiction book. He's most okay. well known as like a kind of you know one of the forefathers of like the the mark the more modern, like weird fiction genre, like, uh, you know, kind of like post Lovecraftian, um, weird fiction. I don't know if you ever read Jeff Vandermeer.
5: Um,
3: no. he wrote, he wrote the, the, um, area X or the um, the Southern reach trilogy that the movie annihilation was based on that okay. Natalie Corbin was in. Yes. So, uh, James Van, uh, I mean, um, Vandermeer was like, um, He's of like the newer generation of weird fiction and or like or like cosmic horror kind of, but uh Thomas Ligotti was like the kind of contemporary father of it, and I don't know he probably started writing in the eighties maybe, but this is his first nonfiction book and it deals with a lot of the issues you were just talking about, like the kind of like the the philosophical history and the contemporary inheritance philosophical inheritance of um uh kind of like consciousness as like the consciousness that is able to examine its own demise and decay might inherently end up being an evolutionary dead end. Like there's so much baggage to that. Yeah, exactly. Like at what point does it become kind of like an evolutionary dead end or at least one that like, that another form, uh, like if there is a let's say we encounter intelligence without consciousness, or, or even something in the between where it was like a conscious intelligence that somehow avoided the prioritizing of the understanding of its own demise. Like imagine that as an entity. Would that entity be able to outcompete an, an entity? that prioritized the examination of its own demise. Yes. Maybe, probably, who knows? It seems like it it really would, but that's why it's- But but it would fundamentally not be human. I mean, like all of the things that make us human and all of the things that prompt a lot of what we do would essentially be wiped off that table.
2: Yes. I love that, prompt what we do. And that's where I was headed, like- that's what makes chronicling this bizarre experience so important. Who knows who's going to inherit all this? Will it be machines that are benevolent towards us or whatever? Or are we going to get outmoded? But like, I don't think any life form on this planet now or in the future has had these circumstances to reckon with that are really beautiful.
3: Yeah, that's that's very true. I I, you're, I think you're... I
2: think you're right there. Um. Well, uh, JP, this is this has been great. I could you're talking my language. I could talk about this all day, but I I am aware of the time. I had one last question that is a bonus question, just because you know color so well. I asked oh, yeah. it of a lot of
3: people. Well, I'll just say that I want to know color so well. <laughs> I I keep trying. I, to think, okay. I think you understand
2: it. Maybe better than anyone I I know, and I know a lot of artists. So I'm excited to ask you this. Um, okay. th- th- it's a simple question, but it's fun. It goes on at the Art Students League a lot, and it's hotly debated. So, is ultramarine blue a warm
3: or cool color? Just okay, well, I, well, I mean, I I have I see. I don't feel that it's an opinion. I feel that it's verifiably backupable, but it also, it also is the result of having a certain kind of framework within which to make judgments about what's warm or cool. Okay. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what uh, I told a, a, my I'll give you my simple answer first. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then I'll give you a slightly longer one. Um, this is cerulean straight out of the tube. Okay. Paint it on a square, just an illustration board. Now, color is subjective, changes based on context, and it also changes based on the quality of the light that is shining upon it, yada, yada, yada. Warm light, cool light can change the kind of perceptual identity of a color. But in the real world, we have to make, the brain makes judgments about color in in a seemingly objective way. Uh, And there are some objective things we can say about color despite the fact that it's majoritively subjective experience. So step one, I'll give you my short answer. This is Cerulean out of the two. It's a good quality paint. It's not some filler-based Winton student grade. Okay. On a clear, sunny day, go outside, put this under sunlight, and then take your finger or anything you want and cover Part of it, so the cast shadow of your finger falls across the paint. Okay, that shadow color has an identity to it, right? Because it's like warm sunlight on the surface, cool the cool light from the sky. And now in my studio, it's going to be different because this isn't that warm, and the light in my studio is very neutral. So it's this is a different experience. But go outside under sunlight, cerulean under warm sunlight. sunlight. Then, then, yeah, direct sunlight. Then put your finger in front of the sunlight so that your finger's casting a shadow over the top of the cerulean and let that shadow be filled by the cool light from the sky. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, you're not going to be painting that cool shadow with more cerulean. You're going to be painting that shadow with ultramarine. Uh-huh. So, in most real-world contexts, the way to get at cool light falling across cerulean is to use ultramarine which would identify it as the cooler of the two now this also has to do with the fact that light the visible spectrum is you know huge from gamma rays all the way down to like ultra low frequency radio waves that we're not perceiving a wave. lot of those but visible light is like a tiny little part in the middle, you know, we go up in ultraviolet, we go down into like radio waves. So in terms of the universe, there's all this other light based information we can't see. We see, you know, a little, little strip, but that strip gets represented not as a strip. It gets represented in a loop. Mm -hmm. It's a continuum from violet all the way around into red and then back into violet again. And there are, you know, the, the historical model for um, uh, one of the historical models for the, for the color wheel is the Roy G. Bibb model with the inclusion of um, Indigo, but the more contemporary simplified version is just going to be the six-hued. Uh, this marker isn't even working, but it's going to be the six-hued color wheel of, like, uh, yellow, orange, red violet blue green mm-hmm. and one of the we tend to divide them up into like a warm half and a cool half and it's not purely arbitrary because if you look at those six spectrum or those six hues you have a warm half and a cool half people forget that yes we grew up we evolved our visual system with the sun but it's not just one light source we actually evolved modern human vision which which is different than like ancient primate vision, but modern human vision evolved under a two light source system, which is that there's the sun and there's the dome of the sky. You know, if you were to like go in the shadow of a cliff, that shadow isn't black, like the dark side of the moon, it's filled with all the cool light from the sky. So we have both a kind of like warm light model and a cool light model That our vision visual system evolved under some a lot most of the time they're overlapping because when you get sunlight on your arm it's the sunlight plus the light of the sky on top of it which cools Mm -hmm. it off a little bit but there are some times where like you know if you were in a dark cave or something where if you were in a forest that absorbed all the light and a beam of sunlight hit your forearm not a whole lot of the blue of the sky is making it down onto your forearm through all the holes in the trees but a little beam of sunlight is so there are definitely times where not a lot of sky dome light makes its way into your shadows, but sunlight does. But they're rare. So our visual system evolved around like these m- most common situations. And, and, a,
2: and a north light skylight is just sky reflection in that room. No right. Yes.
3: Yes. Um, so if we were to take each one of those pie slices in the warm half and the cool half, each one of them has a movement towards like away or towards the other half there's a continuum in a circle and we can identify most of the time we can identify the difference between warm and if you can take any two colors and put them down next to each other and say which one's warmer which one's cooler most people who have very little vocabulary around art can identify like oh these are this these colors are moving warmer and these colors are moving cooler there's like a maximal uh bifurcation it gets harder it gets really hard when you're identifying similar cues or like similar or like colors that are within the same hue range so like different types of blues or different types of orange or different types of red but we're really good at identifying like oranges versus greens or oranges versus purples, like what's warm or cool. And one the problem with that is there is a point on that continuum that our brain makes where there's a peak warm and there's a peak cool because you have to start coming back around the other way again. So like there's only as cool as you can get before you start going the other way. And the, and the challenge is in theory, if there's a peak warm at the top and a peak warm at the bottom, as you broke away from that peak, Warm, really. If it was purely uh, equitable, let's because peak basically peak warm is like in orange, and as you start moving away from peak warm, you one side starts moving into yellow, and one side side starts moving into red. And when you get deep enough into cool red, most people can go. Oh yeah, that red is almost like it's like a you know it's almost like a violet. It's much it's cool. It's not as warm as the orange is. Or when like the green or the yellow that is on like a, like a, a not-quite-ripe banana gets so close to green, people can really easily identify that it's, it's cooler than that peak orange. Mm-hmm. So, But the way that the brain interprets, the, like if you were to move away from peak orange towards yellow and move away from peak orange towards red, in a, in a purely equitable world, they would both be equally far away from peak warm, but the brain actually doesn't give them the same weight. This, this is, this is like this, we could get in, I could give you guys a, give you and readers or the the listeners a bunch of studies have been done on this, but the brain tends to view the yellows as you break away from orange, warmer than the reds as you break away from orange. And part of that is because the yellows that are in the warm half of the sky where the sun is are more dominant than reds are meaning there's more yellow in warm in sunlight than there is red. There is red and it is warm, and it is associated with the sun and warm light, but only under certain conditions, like late in the afternoon when the sun is like almost at the horizon and the, and the red light is moving through a lot of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Do those reds get scattered enough for you to like start to see the pinks in the light at sunset? And it evokes those reds. It's a very rare circumstance. Most of the time, yellows are more dominant in sunlight than reds are. And on the other side, in the sky, like the indirect light from the sky, either at dusk or under north light, situation like that, blues and violets are much more common in that cool half of our lighting model. Then greens are. Greens do show up in the indirect lighting model of the sky, but very rarely. Like they show up a little bit under certain atmospheric conditions. We've all seen them, like, like during that like t- tornado warning skies and stuff. There are certain atmospheric conditions where that greenishness of blue or like blue moving towards green shows up in the sky, but very rarely. Much more common it's on the blue and the violet side. So same thing with blue as you peek away from peak coolness as you go towards greenish blue or into violety blue, the violety blue holds onto its coolness a little bit longer than the greenish blue does because it's much more common in the cool lighting model of the sky that we evolved our kind of dual temperature color system up. So most of the time, none of this stuff really matters because the two colors we're trying to look at are far enough away from each other that you can clearly go, yeah, that's warmer, that's cooler it gets really tricky near peak warm where it's like, is this cool orange warmer or cooler than this warm yellow? And then the other place is when, like, is how far am I slightly towards the greenish side of middle blue or am I slightly towards the violet side of middle blue? And yes, a lot of people will say that ultramarine is warmer because it's closer to red, which is true, but red is the coolest part of the warmth. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So most of the time, the blues that people are looking for are far enough away from each other that this doesn't, this is like a purely conceptual question that we almost never encounter, but there are times when, we're, you know, you're, you're right on the cool side. You're right on the violety side of blue mm-hmm. and you're, and, and you're trying to decide like which, which one is warmer or cooler or blue. And this is the, the tricky part is that most of the, uh, for if we look at six hues, the four, four of the hues have warms and cools that are on opposite sides. So like red gets warmer as it moves towards orange. And cooler as it moves towards violet. And most people are like, yeah, no, that, I can, that makes sense. Violet gets, or purple, let's just say, or that whole hue, gets warmer as it moves towards red. So think like quinacridone magenta. And it gets cooler as it moves towards blue. So think like a royal purple, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and green gets warmer as it moves towards yellow, like a green banana. And it gets cooler as it moves towards blue, like an emerald green. Uh, orange gets warmer as it moves towards yellow and cooler as it moves towards red. But this is the tricky part is that yellow gets warmer as it moves towards orange and orange gets warmer as it moves towards yellow. So our, our warmest warm is orange towards yellow. It's not right in the middle of orange. It's, it's actually, and again, these are arbitrary def like, somebody went and picked a yellow to put in that pie slice of the, you know, like just cause you get a color wheel with six colors on it. doesn't mean that that's actually the yellow of yellows or that's an orange, right. orange. But the way that our brain seems to interpret color divisions is that that orangey yellow, like orange, right on the side of yellow is, is one of the most common kinds of warms that we encounter from one half of our lighting model and blue as it gets cooler towards violet and violet, as it gets cooler towards blue, there's a cool cool that meets here. And on the top half, there's a warm warm that meets there. And that's because those kinds of blues and those kinds of violets are the kinds of blues and violets that we encounter in the sky dome way more than we encounter the blues that are on the green side. And simply because of the dominance of those two, those kinds of yellowy oranges and those kinds of blue violets, the brain places an emphasis of like, this is the kind of thing you're going to encounter most often in the warm part of the lighting model, like where the sun is. And these are the ones you're going to encounter more often in the cool part, like where the shadows are or the Northern sky or whatever. And so we have this weird psychological neurological pinning that's happening there that make that macro. And it's much easier to see things in relation to that macro than it is in relation to see things on either side of that cool, cool divide or that warm, 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 warm divide. So one, one real world way that i like to test this with people because it gets really confusing, especially as you get close to those cores is take, we know that sunlight is warm and the Northern light of the sky dome. It's not written. You could be in the Southern hemisphere and it would be the same as the Northern light, you know, saying there's the sky as an illuminator and there's the sun as an illuminator and one is dominantly on the warm side of colors and one is dominantly on the cool side of colors. Take a cerulean, go outside, cast a shadow on it and tell me if you're going to paint the shadow on cerulean with more cerulean or if you're going to use ultramarine. Whichever one you're going to use has to be the cooler one. The the light illuminating it is the cooler light because it it has less warmth in it than the sun does. And it's a really practical way of seeing that outside of the convolution of belief systems in that situation, it reveals kind of the truth of that tiny little moment there. We could construct situations that might make it feel different than that, but I guarantee you they're not actually going to be the colors that you think that they are. So that's my half hour answer to you wanting to get off of this. Don't, don't try to get off. Quick, which other questions for me? It was the most satisfying
2: answer imaginable because I'm on the cool side too. I've always said that. I've, I have my own reasonings for it. Actually, not dissimilar from you, but so many people will call it
3: warm, you know? And that, that's and because they're thinking too locally because yes, it is closer to red and red is warm, but red is not... It like the the cerulean on the warm or in the middle of of blue. It's a little more in the middle. A cerulean is actually, if you were to go all the way around the color wheel this way, is actually a little bit closer to the warm core than ultramarine is, which is actually you have to travel a little bit further around. Mm-hmm. That's another way to think about it. But really, it's 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 just identifying the fact that it looks like it's actually closer to the warm cool divide because it's closer to red but red is actually really far removed from the warmest of the warms because the warmest of the warms is not is actually orange close to yellow and not orange close to red right which also kind of gets people thinking a
2: little more in terms of cmy than the the, the actual the rgb palette you know yeah. it's like it's sort of it's a little more fine-tuned the way that that
3: works in CMY, you know? But I, I, like, to, I like also to, 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 to get into people's thinking about the idea that, like, we have built into us a, a way to decode form based on that cool indirect lighting model of the sky and the warm direct illumination of the sun. And the most common types of cools in that indirect lighting model are the blues, the blue towards violet and the violet towards blue, rather than the blue towards green and the green towards blue. You do get some really nice warm blues, but you never get anything approaching a green in this, in that skydome with the exception of very rare atmospheric circumstances or like the bizarre green flash that happens at sunset sometimes, but that's not the indirect lighting model of the skydome. So on the cool side, our brain emphasizes what is most common, and what's most common in that indirect lighting model of the sky dome is blue, blue towards meeting violet, and not blue towards meeting green.
2: hmm That's great. Thanks for that answer,
3: uh, JP. This was fantastic. I'm going to give everybody a fake email address to send all their complaints to about. This. <laughs> well, it's not- Please don't anybody dox me about how much you dislike my my colleagues here. So <laughs> This is a blast. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. I, it was totally I, it for me. I could I could do this for another couple hours. So it's a, I really enjoy speaking to you. And I I hope we get to talk more with Dina again.
0: Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Grind podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind. And we'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. Again, it's 929-267-4830. You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.